0: reading this morning is taken from the book of Daniel chapter 1 from verse 1 to 17. In the third year of the reign of Joachim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Joachim, king of Judah into his hands along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials to bring in some of the Israelites Israel, Israelite, sorry, from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude of every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language of, and the literature of the Babylonians, The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king will then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and then tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, he looked healthier. They looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the God took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. This is the word of the Lord. When I was
1: seven years old, um, I really got into reading books about the lives of missionaries. That's the uh, wildlife of a pastor's kid for you right there. And these were, you know, stories of people like Hudson Taylor, who's a missionary in China, or Elizabeth Elliot in eastern Ecuador. And I just was so inspired by these men and women who had gone into another culture, left so much behind to tell people about Jesus. And at one particular point, when I was in my missionary reading story phase, I was reading a kid's book about Amy Carmichael, uh, who at the beginning of the 20th century was a missionary um, in India. And at this point, uh, someone in my wider family who knew me well and knew the stories of missionaries well, happened to ask me the question, Laura, what do you want to be when you grow up? And with a big gr- grin on my face, I sort of piped up with all of the kind of possibility and expectation of a seven-year-old little girl, I'm going to be like Amy Carmichael, to which the family member <laughs> replied, what? You? Really? Really? I mean, way to crush a seven-year-old little girl's (laughs) dreams, hey? But it was quite an understandable response, given the sort of little girl that I was. Was I a risk-taker? No. (laughs) Was I the one who would have been found clinging on to my mum at the school gate? Yes. Would I have clung on to my mum if I could have when she dropped me off at university? Yes. (laughs) But something in me as a seven-year-old, was so stirred as I read the stories of these real-life people who had had such resilience, such courage, had been so brave, and had crossed into other cultures and other places to share the good news of God's love to us in Jesus. And you know, I wanted something of that courage, I wanted something of that resilience. Slightly timid seven-year-old me was inspired by these incredible missionaries. And do you know what? I think something of that is why I'm inspired by Daniel. This book of Daniel, this man, Daniel, in the Old Testament that we're looking at as we start our series together this morning. If we're honest, and if I'm honest, sometimes I read about some of the Old Testament characters and I'm like, why did you behave like that? And it's helpful to remember, isn't it, that often they're there not for us to put on a pedestal and to kind of have as this flawless, perfect model of how we're to live, but actually they're there to point us to our need for God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. And so whilst Daniel, of course, isn't perfect, I think he's rather exceptional. I think He's probably my favorite Old Testament character. He's this man of prayer. He's this man of bold integrity. He's this man of the prophetic. He's this man who speaks boldly into like the highest levels of power and authority, and he's the one who shares his faith so, bo- so boldly that he sees the beginnings of a revival in the superpower of the ancient world. And he's this man who, many years before the coming of the Lord Jesus, has this incredible vision of the Lord Jesus in chapter 7, calling him the Son of Man, a phrase and a title that Jesus used for himself throughout the Gospels. And so we might imagine that if Daniel was, you know, such a brilliant guy, then surely his life was plain sailing, really easy. Well, no. Our passage this morning of chapter 1 of Daniel starts actually in tragedy with Daniel who is an Israelite, part of the people of God, taken away from Jerusalem, the land of God's people, as it's invaded by the Babylonian empire. Verse 1, maybe have a look at it with me. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, what was Babylon like? Well, you can tell quite a bit about a place, can't you, if you get sort of like a bird's eye view. And what you'd have seen in the Babylonian skyline were these tall points and towers and temples, all kind of crafted and made to a whole bunch of different pagan gods that were worshipped by the Babylonians, gods that they created, the ones who sort of were appeased and all about things like wealth and power and aggression and so on. And to go in through, into the city of Babylon, you'd go through a gate that was dedicated to one of the goddesses. And right at the heart of the city was this temple to Ishtar, this same goddess. And in these temples that sort of shaped the skyline of Babylon were also libraries, To use a sort of modern-day phrase, Babylon was a thriving university city. You could study all sorts of things there, from astrology to art to medicine to economics to law. And Daniel and his three friends from Israel, Israel, the Israelites, I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like for them, walking into a place like that at this time? They'd been taken to, to study there for a few years. Who's a student here? We've got any students here this morning? The parallels between you guys and Daniel and his, his friends are really intriguing. And Stephen, our rector here at St. Audates, he was just saying about his kind of vision, this overall title for what we're wanting to do as we look through Daniel together. And I absolutely love this. He said this, that it's this question, how can we be resilient disciples of Jesus in a complex world. Because you see, we're in a Babylon of our own, aren't we, in the 21st century, trying to live by the values of the goodness of the kingdom of God. That kingdom which we know has saved us, that kingdom which we know ultimately brings us life in all of its fullness. But everywhere we turn, there's pressure on every side. The skyline of the 21st century West is also full of idols. And so we're asking ourselves in our own Babylon of our age, how can we continue to run in the ways that God has for us in life in all of its fullness, in our workplace, in amongst the ideologies of our society? And so I've been asking myself this week, what's Daniel's secret what is Daniel's secret? And I think where I came to to begin, I guess, to land with that question is that Daniel's secret is that he has an unwavering trust in God. Daniel's secret and the way that we are to become resilient disciples in our own Babylon is to have unwavering trust in God. You see, Daniel says no Daniel is prepared to sort of pack in his whole career. Daniel is prepared to speak up, to speak wisdom, to pray big prayers. All because he trusts in his God and our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so first off then, what does Daniel's trust look like? Well, Daniel trusts firstly in God's name for him. He gets a name change, doesn't he, Daniel? Have a look at verse 6, where we read, Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. This is verse 7. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. You can imagine Daniel and his three friends, can't you, rocking up to their student accommodation or registering for their new course and going, hold on a second... (laughs) The label against my name isn't the name that I was born with. The name I know points to the God of Israel, the uncreated one, the one who delivered us out of slavery in Egypt. No, hold on a second. Our names now point and extol all these other pagan gods because that's what these new names were about. And you see, I think that this name change thing is sort of a classic move of the powers of darkness, to get right to the core of Daniel's central identity and security. When he rocks up in this new place, surrounded by all these temptations, right at the beginning of his arrival in Babylon, is this question to him, Daniel, who are you? Daniel, whose are you? And I think that so much of what flows in Daniel's bold integrity, in his decisions, in all that he does with his time in Babylon comes from that central question of Daniel knowing who he was. One of my favorite verses um, in the whole book of Daniel is in chapter 10, verse 18. And Daniel is speaking about one of his visions. And recording his experience, he says this, and I absolutely love this, Again, one in human form touched me and strengthened me. He said, do not fear, O man greatly loved. You are safe. Be strong and courageous. I think so much of the clarity of Daniel's vision, so much of the uh, clarity of his choices and of his integrity is because he knew that he was loved by God. I think so much of the clarity of our choices or our bold integrity or our willingness to take a stand for Jesus or to take a risk or to be bold and brave like those missionaries I loved as a seven-year-old is because we know that come what may, whatever is coming our way, we are, as Daniel could say in chapter 10, beloved of God. We are loved of God. If we know that, then we are perhaps more likely to make those bold choices. If we know who has given us a name, no matter what anyone else has tried to name us throughout our lives, then we will be able to stand firm to be, as Stephen said, those resilient disciples of Jesus in a complex world. And so Daniel resolves, doesn't he, in verse 8, not to eat the food of the Babylonian court, That's in part because this food would have gone against some of the Old Testament food laws of the Israelites, in part perhaps because it would have involved all these practices to other foreign gods, and perhaps because some of this culture of excessive kind of wine drinking and rich food was just not something that Daniel in his conscience felt that he could get on board with. And so he asked for different food. But you know, this is about so much more than just food and eating vegetables, I think this moment in chapter one, along with the lion's den or the fiery furnace or the other exciting things we'll journey through in this series, this is all these little moments in Daniel's life where he's kind of saying, Call me what you want, Nebuchadnezzar. Call me Belteshazzar if you want to, but I know whose I am. I belong to the God who loves me, and in his arms, and in his plans, and in his purposes, I am safe. So I will be bold. And courageous. So Daniel trusts in God's name for him. And you know, sometimes in our complex world, we can stop trusting God because we start to hear these sort of untruths and they begin to stick with us. And maybe just like Adam and Eve, in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, the lie of the enemy comes to us and says, Did God really say that? Did God really place that call on your life? Are you sure, isn't it interesting that it's a question of trust? Can you really trust what God said? And so that's why it's so important for us, as we seek to be resilient disciples of Jesus Christ, to read our Bibles. Before we wake up in the morning and scroll through, I don't know, whatever feed it might be on Instagram or Twitter, to feed on his word, for in it we find who he is, his character, his goodness, his promises to us. So that as we journey through this complex world, we know his label over our lives, that above anything else, today we are those made in the image of God, made in the image of God, loved more than we'll ever know, and in Jesus Christ and through his death and resurrection, made a son or a daughter of the living God. Isn't that wonderful? That is who we are this morning and so Daniel trusts in God's name for him. And secondly, he trusts in God's presence with him. So he knows who he is, and he knows who's with him. One of the things that struck me about this passage when I read it the last week are the specific moments where we see God's involvement in and over all that's going on. In verse 9, we read, God gave Daniel favor. And verse 17, as for these youths, God gave them learning and skill. You know, it might have been a complex world in Babylon, but sat at his desk or socializing with the Babylonians, you know, resting, working, whatever he was doing. Daniel knew that his God, the one and true living God, the God of Israel, was with him. Wherever you find yourself tomorrow... Wherever you find yourself this week, even sat there right now this morning, God is with you. Owen, my husband, went to New Zealand several years ago with Simon Potserby. Uh, who's the pastor of theology here, they were doing some conferences and stuff. And at one point uh, during their trip, they stayed with a family called the Reeds, who had these two dogs, apparently, um, who were like the best of friends. These dogs had kind of grown up together uh, right from their early days in the family home. And one of these dogs was like this tiny little yappy Yorkshire Terrier. And the other dog was this massive, solid Rhodesian Ridgeback Apparently, these people are laughing. They know what those dogs are. Um, They're, like, um, apparently sort of bred to hunt lions. Daniel could have done with one of those in Chapter 6, couldn't he? And apparently, the sort of little Yorkshire terrier used to sort of strut around thinking that he owned the joint because he'd been so used to everywhere that he had gone all his life being with this lion-hunting Rhodesian Ridgeback. (laughs) You know, the the yapping kind of confidence of this little Yorkshire Terrier had absolutely nothing to do with himself, but was all about who was always with him. And the the Reeds apparently told Simon and Owen that there was this one time in the park where they tied up the Rhodesian Ridgeback to a log, and the little Yorkshire Terrier hadn't realized this, so he'd carried on his usual thing of yapping at all the dogs and then made the fatal error of yapping at an Alsatian. Um, And uh, this Ridgeback, who was tied up, saw the plight that his little pal was getting into and apparently sort of ran across the whole park, dragging the whole log with him, um, just to come to his little friend's uh, aid. Daniel is brave. Those missionaries that I loved as a little girl were brave. But, you know, and this is a relief for those of us who maybe sometimes feel like a little yappy Yorkshire Terrier. Courage and bold integrity are not ultimately about a certain personality type. Courage is actually not about you. It's about who is with you. And more than that, who indwells, who lives in you? For we're told in the scriptures that the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the spirit of God, dwells within us, empowering us, strengthening us, drawing alongside us his presence with us so that we can be those bold disciples in a complex world. So that leap of faith that the Lord might be asking you to take, you can do it, but because of who he is. That change that you know that the Spirit is inviting you to make in your life because it's not for your good, you can do because he is your present help. So Daniel trusted in God's name for him. He trusted in God's presence with him. And thirdly, And finally, he trusted beyond what he could see. Daniel trusted in eternity. Verse 19 of chapter 1 says this, that the king found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. You know, maybe we read that and we think, oh, well, of course Daniel could have courage. Of course he could have bold integrity because look at his life. I mean, look at that list in verse four. Apparently he's smart, he's handsome, he has positions of power. I mean, it's so obvious that God is for him superficially. I wonder whether sometimes our trust in God fails or needs strengthening because what we see in the current circumstances of our lives seems to suggest to us that maybe God isn't for us. You know, when we did stand up for Jesus, but we didn't get that position in the junior common room, or when we did stand up for him in our workplace and it was really uncomfortable, or when actually we'd rather kind of control all of the outcomes, so we're like, okay, God, I'm up for what you're calling me to because I think you're calling me to it, but actually, I'd like you to tell me before I take that leap of faith how it's going to go for me, if you could just give me a heads up before I move forward. Sometimes, you see, God's goodness, his purposes, his ways, sometimes the very reality of him being for us looks very different to what we'd have chosen for ourselves, or what we'd have imagined for our lives, or what our parents might have imagined, or our career advisor. You know, God being for us does not mean that in this life we can claim health and wealth and success. You know, let's not forget that Daniel and his friends are in exile. You know, it would have seemed to them on the surface, like all of the promises that had been made for the Israelites, for the people of God, you know, what had happened to God? Where were you, God? We read, don't we, at the beginning of the chapter that the stuff of the temple had been taken. So I'm sure at points Daniel and his friends would have asked from what they could see from the surface level, from the superficial stuff, where are you, God? But... Daniel trusts in God's love for him. Daniel trusts in God's presence with him. And Daniel trusts in eternity. Daniel trusts that we are exiles in this land, but ultimately, where is our home? It is in the new creation, where forever we will be in the arms of a loving God, safe and secure. And there's this amazing moment, isn't there, in chapter 3. It's yet another test. Yet another opportunity for Daniel and his friends to say no. They say no a lot. They're very good at that. There's this moment where Nebuchadnezzar in his vanity makes an idol for himself, and he says to everyone, all of you bow down, worship it, if you don't, in the fiery furnace. And Daniel's friends say, we're not going to. Our God will save us. And then they say this, and I love this line. This is in chapter 3, verse 18. But even if he does not, We want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Wow. Even if, even if this doesn't go how I would have controlled it, even if this is really uncomfortable, even if this is a challenge beyond what I feel I can cope with, Daniel and his friends say, Lord, we only see in part. And we're going to trust in eternity, where, as Romans 8 promises us, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, writes Paul, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, a fire, a lion's den, whatever it might be, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The uh, 1992 Barcelona Olympics were a little bit before my missionary story phase. So I don't really remember them, but I'm told that the men's 400 meters was the race that most people remember the 1992 Olympics for. And Derek Renmond, uh, this British athlete, was a gold medal hopeful. Some of you remember this race? Yeah. The gun goes off. They go around the first bend. And then at the 150 meter point, Derek Redmond falls to the floor in agony, writhing around, pushing on his leg to try and control the pain because his hamstring had snapped. And he tries to kind of pull himself up on the track and he's crying and he's he's wincing. And then suddenly from behind him appears this man who's broken through the security barriers and has joined him on the track and it's his dad. And his dad puts his arm around him and together he enables Redmond to hop to the finish line to finish the race, all the while whispering in his son's ear words that the cameramen can't hear. In the Olympic Village, the athletes had a sort of electronic mail system to leave one another messages. And after Redmond's race, he received messages from fellow competitors from all over the place. And he had one from this Canadian athlete that he'd never met, and it said this. Long after the names of the medalists have faded from our minds, you will be remembered for having finished, for having tried so hard, for having a father to demonstrate the strength of his love for his son. I thank you, and I will always remember your race, and I will always remember you, the purest, most courageous example of grit and determination I have ever seen. In our complex world, as we sometimes feel like we are limping in our lane to cross the finish line, would we know this day, as we trust in the Lord's name over our lives, as we trust in his love for us, as we trust that he is with us, that we, ourselves in this race, have the strength of the love of a father who draws alongside us, who has shown us that love to us in his son and that we have the Spirit whispering courage into our ears this day and wherever we find ourselves this week. Trust in his name for you above all else. Trust in his presence with you wherever you find yourself. And trust in his eternal and perfect future for you so that you can live this one wild life boldly and courageously. For he's good, and his love endures forever. Amen.